This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, the place where tech workers come to get smarter about their money. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to take you beneath the surface level and cover traditional personal finance topics in a way that is both approachable and relatable, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there listeners, Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking personal finance. More specifically, we're talking about marriage and divorce, how to think about your finances as you enter into marriage, and what to do if you believe a divorce is inevitable. Nobody enters a marriage expecting to get divorced, yet, regardless of our best intentions, relationships can and do fall apart. While the emotional roller coaster of divorce is difficult enough, the added frustration of financial litigations can make a situation that much worse. Unfortunately, the current system of divorce in the U.S. does a poor job of educating folks on the alternatives to litigation. And in the event legal arbitration is the only choice left, where does one turn? Given the higher salaries and equity arrangements, tech workers are more likely than most to enter marriages with lopsided assets or income, or both. Furthermore, as a tech worker, it is common to spend your early years building a career, resulting in a later life marriage, and sometimes with children from previous relationships. Because of this, some parties may stand to walk away from a marriage with much more than they came into it with, and these realities of life should not be ignored when considering a marriage. Even the most rational, cool-headed individuals can later be sucked into the emotional damage that is typical of divorce. My guest, Andrew Hatherley is the certified divorce financial analyst and founder of Wiser Divorce Solutions, where he seeks to help divorcing couples and individuals avoid the financial and emotional hazards of divorce. Having been divorced himself, he has firsthand experience with the broken and frustrating U.S. divorce system, and in light of this, he established Wiser Divorce Solutions to transform the way in which divorce is handled in this country. So, with that brief introduction, welcome Andrew Hatherley to the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you very much, Malcolm. I'm very happy to be here today. Yeah, I appreciate you making the time to do this. This should be a pretty interesting conversation, but to get us started, I breezed through your resume pretty quickly there in my intro. What else should I have included? Well, you might have mentioned that I'm a would-be filmmaker and struggling novelist and that I've been a (laughs) beginner guitar player for 45 years, but just as well you didn't go through that. I'd say that, you know, Wiser Divorce Solutions, I founded in 2017, 
after my divorce, I've been a financial advisor who for a long time before that, mm-hmm. I have Hatherley Capital Management as my RIA. And I founded Wiser Divorce Solutions after my divorce because I just learned that there was so much that I could teach people and educate people. And I found that it was a higher calling in a way to focus on this niche. So essentially, what I do is through Wiser Divorce Solutions and my work as a CDFA, I help people in the kind of before and during divorce stage. And then after divorce, through my advisory firm, Hatherley Capital Management or Transcend Retirement, I help people after divorce build the financial foundation for you know a meaningful life going forward. And one thing I'd like to say at the outset as well is, for compliance purposes, I am not an attorney. So I have to throw that disclaimer in all the time. I do not practice law or pretend to practice law. I have lots of great attorney colleagues and contacts who I refer clients to when legal questions come up. I have to imagine that happens to you quite a bit because you are among a small handful of fellow financial advisors, financial planners, financial professionals who I know personally who also have that CDFA, Certified Divorce Financial Analyst, designation, those letters after their name. And they, too, immediately make sure that it's known that they are not attorneys giving divorce, (laughs) legal divorce advice and counsel. They are simply financial planners who have decided to specialize in that way and have a little bit more advanced knowledge, but not necessarily the legal capacity to advise you in that way. Yes, Malcolm. Attorneys can be a little sensitive sometimes. uh, (laughs) With reason, they've worked very hard and most attorneys continue to work very hard and very long hours. So I always position myself to attorneys and to clients that are working with attorneys as a compliment to the services that they offer. They exist to help you with the legal matters of divorce. Divorce is a legal process, but let's face it, it's all about money. And mm-hmm. and so I serve as a kind of financial expert on cases to help the attorneys in the case where I'm working with an attorney and a client in, let's say, an advocacy role. But in other cases, I may be a financial neutral and both parties may have their own attorney or they may be working with me and then I may refer them to an attorney to do the legal work with regards to the settlement. Let's stay there for a second because I like the fact that you're making this distinction because you spent, from what I understand, a couple of decades as a financial advisor. And so I'm sure you've seen a ton of different scenarios, a ton of different attitudes, personalities, everything else leading up to deciding to go in this different direction or somewhat different direction and specialize with this different crowd of folks. (laughs) What do you think in that work as a sort of generalist, if you will, prepared you to start down this path working as a divorce specializing or a specialty advisor? Well, I think one thing that I bring as a financial advisor to the divorce world, and as I mentioned that honestly attorneys don't, is that I'm encouraging clients to look at a divorce settlement with a future orientation. It's not just about Mm -hmm. splitting assets. So there's a financial planning component of my work in 
the divorce world that wouldn't be there otherwise. It was just an attorney or two attorneys working to split assets. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned not only that the split be such that it works out for both parties, but there's, there's a future orientation towards it, a planning approach. So I had that layer of financial planning and making sure that the settlement will lay the financial foundation for the client's future. So that's one way in which my financial planning, financial advisory background plays into my divorce work. But equally important, I think my work as a financial advisor has prepared me for the emotional side of divorce. Mm. Of course, going through my own divorce <laughs> puts me in an empathetic position also with regards to understanding what people are going through. But, you know, when we're talking about the emotions, the amygdala, the primitive brain, that fearing the saber-toothed tiger around every corner, that's present in both the divorce world and working with advisory clients. But back to divorce, you know, there's a saying among attorneys that in the divorce world, that the criminal justice system sees bad people on their best behavior. You know, we've always seen on mm -hmm. court TV some really bad characters going into court with a suit and tie. They may have hate tattooed on their forehead, but they're saying yes, sir, no, sir, to the judge. Yeah. Whereas the divorce world often sees good people on their worst behavior hmm. because the emotions are so frayed. And I acknowledge this with myself. My ex-wife may acknowledge it with herself as well, that neither one of us were particularly on our best behavior during our divorce. But I think there's a similarity there between, you know, the behavior of people going through divorce and the behavior of people going through market crashes and the way people hmm. respond. I think a lot of investors aren't at their best during a down market. They can make rash decisions, decisions based on fear. They can cast blame on others. Of course, we all know that lawsuits against financial advisors always go up in bear market or, or market crashes. And just from an investment standpoint, logically, People know that they should buy low and sell high. And how many times have we had financial planning conversations with clients where we make sure we understand their risk profile and agree that it would be a good idea to take advantage of any opportunities a, a down market might present? And of course, we know what happens when the down market comes. <laughs> it's like, get me out of here. Yeah. I said, well, hang on a sec. A year ago, we talked about this being a buying opportunity. So that kind of fear and you know, fight or flight amygdala type response tends to come up in the, the advisory world. And I think that might have prepared me a little bit for working with people going through divorce because there's the same sort of thing happening there. But as you were talking about the difference in the court process, right? Criminal prosecution, divorce litigation, the differences in the way people go about that. For those of us who had never been, thankfully, inside the courtroom for either of those instances, what is sort of the process that you're referring to? And assuming you don't mean the typical arbitration with a mediator and things are a little bit more calm, it sounds like you're talking about a lot more contentious situation what is the average couple finding happening in that type of proceeding? Okay, 
Well, it's a very good question. And I should say at the outset that my experience in divorce and working with divorced people ultimately led me to doing a divorce workshop, the Wiser Divorce Workshop, which I do with a family law attorney and other divorce professionals. And the whole thrust of this is to let people know precisely as you're asking about the various options in divorce. And whenever possible, to avoid the contentious, emotionally and financially draining litigious process. Now, there can be extremes. You know, at at one extreme, you may have a couple with very little in the way of assets who actually get along very well. Maybe they haven't been married that long. They recognize it's a mistake. They may essentially do what's called a do-it-yourself divorce. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got couples in highly litigious cases where they can't come to an agreement. They're both paying a lot in legal fees to their attorneys, and they go all the way to to trial and sit in front of a judge. Now, very few cases actually go all the way to a trial. Okay. Yeah, that seemed to me like something we only see celebrity divorces. Uh, That's right, because it, it's great entertainment on TV with, you know, L.A. Law. And I'm, I'm dating myself. You probably don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I've heard of it. <laughs> back, back, back in the days of yore, medieval times, it was this TV series called L.A. Law. <laughs> but yet, yeah, I mean, because that's entertaining, that's high conflict, and, and stories love conflict. But... I've heard statistics that maybe 5% of cases go to trial because what happens is there's a timeline in divorce and a trial is the end of the timeline. And couples often find that in the middle of the timeline, while they're busy being unpleasant with one another or their attorneys are being unpleasant with the other party, the legal fees are dragging on, building up. The emotional toil is building up. And... When they come to the stage where, okay, well, either we settle or we need to prepare for trial, they realize that trial means potential doubling of all the costs and even more contention. Mm-hmm. They'll throw in their hands and say, okay, let's settle because you know they don't want to go through even more pain. And the sad thing is that ultimately, people often end up settling a similar type of settlement they they could have made a month into the process if they'd been educated about the options. And you mentioned briefly mediation. I think mediation is often a far preferable approach to divorce from a time perspective, from a money perspective, from an emotional perspective. And with a mediator, you know, you've got a, a person who may or may not be attorney, an attorney who serves as a facilitator for a couple to come to an agreement relatively peacefully. I would say the final agreement should be drawn up by a legal professional. But the whole point of the mediation process is that it puts an emphasis on openness, respect, flexibility, which the litigious divorce process doesn't. Now, I would say as a caveat, there are certainly cases where it needs to be a litigious divorce, where there are legal issues or battery or restraining orders, things like that. There are some cases are not suitable for mediation. But ultimately, it's if a couple's willing and relatively amicable, they need to realize that, or they should realize that fair is a four-letter word in divorce. No one's going to, (laughs) no one's going to consider it fair. What I 
suggest couples look for and the attorneys I work with is a workable solution. We're looking for something that's not win-win. It's not going to be win-win. The family's assets are being split in two, but it could be a workable solution to begin your life going forward. And I should just mention quickly that there's another process that should be mentioned. It's a formal process called collaborative divorce law. And I'd say it's it's kind of a step, a notch above mediation in that both parties will have attorneys and they'll be collaboratively trained, like capital C, collaboratively trained attorneys. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a neutral financial advisor and likely also a divorce coach. And in this formal collaborative process, the onus is on the couple and the attorneys to settle because if they don't settle, the attorneys need to remove themselves from the case. So it's kind of like it's in financial terms, you call it a poison pill mm-hmm. that in the collaborative, you either settle or you have to start all over again. So that's a little bit more expense. Well, it's more expensive than mediation, but it could be a better solution, certainly than a highly litigated case that goes on for a long time. So since this is the place that tech workers come to get smarter about their money, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is that you've set out to fundamentally change how divorce is done in this country, right? That's your claim to fame. And so now that we've covered, you know, the current state of things, how divorces actually happen, the different options that there are, that sort of thing. Can you walk us through a little bit where Wiser Divorce Solutions fits into this picture? Like, what are you focused on improving when it comes to the experience? If I'm working as a neutral, I really want to be a facilitator in the mediation process to help a couple come to the settlement themselves. And this is an interesting area where you kind of have to take off your financial advisor hat because, you know, in the financial advisor world, we're used to prescribing solutions for our clients and leading the way. Whereas at least in the mediation role as a CDFA, I'm trying to help clients come to a solution that works for both of them while educating them on the process as well. And, you know, they may have consulting attorneys or they may be just taking our agreement to an attorney to formalize. So that's in my role as a kind of financial neutral. When I'm working with an attorney as an advocate for a client is kind of like part of their divorce team. That's when I get more into the weeds of the financials and point out areas to the attorney where, hey, maybe we're missing an account here or money's Mm -hmm. money's gone this way. You mentioned tech workers. Certainly, one thing about tech workers is often a lot of RSUs and executive compensation that they're they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the divorce world, that can get kind of complicated because there are very interesting rules for, for RSUs and stock grants, that sort of thing in divorce. So it pays to have someone who's at least aware that there's a potentially an issue there. One of the key pieces of that that I want to point out since you brought it up is this whole idea of no assignment, right? And most equity grants, at least the agreements that I have read through, which is probably a lot of the companies that people listening to this work for and represent, 
that no assignment clause basically means you can't assign the ownership of your shares to someone else. But I have to imagine in a divorce proceeding, the other party, the other spouse looks at that as an asset that does have some financial value, whether you have access to it or have vested in those shares or not. For sure, Malcolm, for sure. I mean, if granted during a marriage, those benefits can potentially contain a community property and a separate property component, which which needs to be divided. And, you know, as you mentioned, most companies won't allow the employee to transfer the benefits to a non-employee mm-hmm. ex-spouse. And because of this, the employee spouse ends up acting as a fiduciary for the non-employee spouse, which just complicates the process even more. I would say it's important to check with a company to make sure that the grant can't be divided, but that the overwhelming majority of the time, the employee spouse is going to have to maintain those shares under his or her name and divide them according to the divorce stipulation. Or even worse, they've got to make the counterparty whole in some other way for the present value of what those shares are today, which is the part that scares me a little bit as the advisor who goes through these agreements and advises clients on them on a regular basis. As anyone who experienced 2021 and then 2022 would know, just because the company was worth, you know, $500 a share in one market cycle, doesn't mean it's worth that in the next market cycle. And so you could be, if you're getting divorced at the wrong time, making the other party whole with cash or some other asset, and then also losing the value of those shares because it's just on paper. It's not tangible wealth until the vesting date. And then that's a double whammy that happens where, you know, you've given up cash to be able to hold on to those shares longer term to see their value come to fruition. Then the shares get halved in a bear market and you've lost now twice. That's a very good point. And really in any kind of divorce, there's always that issue of offsetting assets, especially let's just take a simple case where you've got a lot of equity in the house or a large retirement account. Mm-hmm. Quite often, you know, it's a stereotype in the divorce world that the the wife will typically want the house mm-hmm. and the husband will want the retirement plan or the stock grants. But what happens if the housing market is great and the stock market goes to heck? You know, it's a, yeah. there's an element of risk there. And I think in many cases, that's why a lot of attorneys prefer to split things down the middle mm-hmm. as opposed to doing a lot of offsetting. But in some cases, it's tricky and you need to take into consideration all the various issues. You mentioned tech workers. You said something about getting married a little later in life. Yeah, to me, from what I know of the audience listening to this, the client base that that we work with, usually this group tends to get married a little bit later in life because they've put career before most anything else, using those younger years to build up your certifications, your experience, your everything else means that you're probably getting married, if not in your 30s, in your 40s and potentially even your 50s in some cases, because sometimes folks are working so hard on that thing and it coming to fruition that they're foregoing everything else until that thing pays off. And that could be decades in some cases. And so, yeah, you get people who are walking into marriages with a home or two or three, 
maybe they've exited, you know, the company that they founded all those years ago. And they're now talking about seven, eight, nine million dollar net worths as they're walking into these marriages. And so the concern for me as the advisor of that person, hypothetically walking into this is the things that you should be doing and thinking about and putting into place in advance of that marriage. Right. So, you know, prenuptial agreement, for example, which people have very strong opinions around. But I do think in the situation and the scenario that we're discussing, it has to be something that you at least consider as part of the standard conversation and advising of the folks that you're talking to. Well, you're very right. Correct, Malcolm. I think prenups are becoming to be a little bit more accepted in society. And Mm -hmm. part of the reason is, you know, as, as you say, People are, are living longer. There's a lot of second marriages. An example of that myself, I was married for a second time uh, a couple of years ago. Married later in life, second marriages. Of course, there's a separate property component to what's earned before marriage, but then there can be a lot earned after related to what was built before marriage. So I'm a big fan of prenup agreements. And I think younger people, and by younger, young, I, I refer to people in their 30s and 40s who may, may be younger in a demographic sense, but older in terms of typical first marrying age, I think a prenup makes so much sense. And the trick is there's that old taboo about it being so unromantic and not the way you want to start mm-hmm. your marriage. But I always say, do you get insurance? Do you get home insurance? Do you get life insurance? And does home insurance cause a fire in your house? No. It's there in case. And I think a prenup is a similar sort of insurance. And if only people knew how miserable the divorce process was, they'd get a prenup. I appreciate your insurance example because the rebuttal I usually give folks is the fact that it is ultimately a business decision, right? The IRS recognizes the two of you as a, a a business entity that has been formed by two separate entities coming together under one umbrella, which is very sterile and very uh, unromantic at at its best. And so I appreciate your insurance uh, analogy having at least a little bit more human component to it than than me treating it as, you know, a merger <laughs> or an... Uh, a merger on the stock market. I'm on the same page as you, Malcolm, you know, and this is something I say all the time in my in my workshops. A divorce is likely, we'll go back to before marriage in a minute, but a divorce is likely the largest financial transaction of your life. And you don't want to do it in an environment of highly frayed emotions. So having a prenup in place just lays it all out there. It's 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 easy peasy, relatively speaking, because you've planned for it. But you've also been doing this work long enough to know yeah. that it's tough enough for people who are coupling up to even have a conversation around income yeah. or to even have a conversation around expectations around how you will manage your money, how I will manage my money, how I'll we'll merge our finances together if and when we get married down the line. All those things that... Are, You and I, as practical people who think about money for a living, know needs to happen at some stage in the the dating and coupling up phase. Those are all the things that are already what make people feel weird about discussing. So 
I can only imagine how difficult it is to push it even further to then be able to talk about what's going to happen if they're, what's our dissolution agreement of this entity we're forming, <laughs> right? Like to be able to talk about what happens if this goes wrong is probably five times tougher to talk about what's going to happen when this goes right. And so uh, as a person who's been through this personally, also advises people going through this now, like any tips, tricks, conversation starters, recommendations, any of that, that you can share with the listening audience that would help to facilitate that type of a conversation? You know, it's funny. You, you just made me think of something, an anecdote from my life from quite a while ago, about 15 years ago. A woman I was dating at the time sent me a questionnaire of questions that romantic partners should ask themselves in advance of getting married. And which was amusing because I had no intention of marrying this woman. <laughs> but uh, it was a very instructive list of questions. And I'm wondering how we might get more people. And I think people are getting married later. Mm -hmm. And so I think there will be a tendency. They're getting married later. They're getting married with more in the way of assets. So I think society is moving in a way that financial discussions will be a more accepted part of a romantic relationship. I read a poll conducted a few years ago that showed that 58% of people would rather be single than married to a financially irresponsible spouse. And that's something like 25% of couples break up over money issues. You said 25%? Yeah, I, I read that somewhere. I'm not sure about the accuracy of that. I would bet that number's got to be north of 75, 80%. Well, hang on a sec, Malcolm. There's a lot of reasons people break up. <laughs> I think about how much strain and stress people go through over money, right? Like you mentioned, there's one person in the relationship who likes to spend and the other person who's worried about tomorrow. And you have financial infidelity, as it's called, right? Where one person goes out and gambles the mortgage money on crypto right. and then loses it all when FTX collapses, right? Which is an actual truism. I'm not just making that up off the top of my head. Or you have the, the things where folks will be saving money in a way that they don't want the other person to know and the other person finds out. Now that becomes an issue and a point of contention. Like there's so many different things surrounding money in a relationship that people will fight over because it's the one thing that we connote to power in our society where the person and the people who have money have sway and have say, basically. Oh, that's very true. You talk a little bit about the different money habits and money attitudes of people. And we should really, and the question is how, I'm not sure how, but those of us who are conscious enough, and typically it's going to be people who have, you know, been in a career for a little while and lived a little bit of life, mm -hmm. but they're going to be more conscious of the money stories of their future spouse. Mm -hmm. Do they spend every last penny on Star Wars collectibles or fancy purses? Do they think it's important to have high-end luxury car that's financed versus, say, a Kia that's paid all cash? Or on the other hand, are they ultra frugal for a nicer word than saying cheap? 
but <laughs> you're going to be living with this person hopefully for the rest of your life. You want to know what their money style is. And in some cases, compromises can be, can be reached, but it's important to know. And especially on, on the debt side, because debt's the real killer. And when the love chemicals are flowing, the dopamine's rushing and you don't really want to be asking your fiance what her debt equity ratio is. Not necessarily, but at some point, you got to ask. You do. Like as unromantic as I know that sounds, at some point, you've got to ask, right? Like otherwise, you're setting yourself up to end up having this conversation, right? One of the things that got my attention and made me decide you and I needed to have this conversation on the record, I saw an interview that you did on the news a while back where you were talking about Jennifer Lopez (laughs) and her, her, her divorce. And it got me because I know you took a ton of heat for the idea that you shared publicly that she needed to be having a prenup. Because she was married multiple times. and that I think she'd been married, yeah, three times, I think. And so that meant that she was more likely to be divorced in the future because she had been divorced in the past. And so as we're talking about the love chemicals, as you termed it, (laughs) there has to be some sort of conversation that happens prior to as difficult and uncomfortable as it is because... From what we're talking about here, divorce is 10 times, 20 times, 50 times, you'll tell me, even worse a conversation to have to have. Oh, it sure is. It's funny you bring up that J-Lo A-Rod appearance. Mm-hmm. Did they ever get married? I don't believe I so. Don't think they, I don't think they did. I think they, they broke up and then she went back to Ben, right? We could go down to page six rabbit hole here, but... I'm terrible with pop culture bingo, but I, I don't believe so. I need to bring my wife in here. She knows she knows the answer to these questions. But I would think that someone like J-Lo, she's more inclined. She's more likely to get a prenup after three marriages than, or even somebody such as myself after one marriage. Once you've been through mm-hmm. it, you never want to go through it again if you've had an unpleasant divorce. Fortunately, some people have relatively amicable divorces, but most of the time it's an unpleasant experience and it can be a really unpleasant experience. So someone like J-Lo, I would suggest, I would bet a lot that her and Ben Affleck both have prenups going into mm-hmm. going into their, their marriage. I think the issue with, you talk about people not getting married. I think what I took a little bit of heat on in the interview was I suggested that if J-Lo and A-Rod were not to get married, but just live together, but go into business together. Mm-hmm. They needed definitely needed to have a business agreement set up by an attorney and potentially something called a cohabitation agreement, which is kind of like a prenup for people who are who are living together. But definitely they would have needed to, if they would have continued on in business to speak to a, an attorney and have a business agreement drawn up. Can you say a little bit more about that cohabitation agreement? Because one of the things that gets me, I watch, uh, especially through the pandemic, my wife and I sitting on the couch watching a ton of house hunters, right? We saw countless times where there's a couple who's dating and decides to buy a house together. And we both look at each other and go, oh my God, what are they doing? Right. So the cohabitation agreement that you're describing, I think would be perfect for people who find themselves in that situation. Can you say a little bit more about how I go about drafting something like that if I find myself in that position. This is where I have to put on my 
I am not an attorney hat and say, speak to a qualified attorney to get documentation, legal documentation drawn up that would delineate how assets Mm -hmm. are to be split in the event that the relationship doesn't work out. Yeah, it's, it's always tricky when you have situations, people mingling their finance, particularly in a house, particularly if they're not married, I wouldn't recommend it. And it's that thing that once again, back to the idea of a prenup, people are so carried away by the romantic attachment. They think they just can't see the potential downside. But once again, I think people with a little bit more life experience, either having gone through it once or maybe having built up you know, a good business or a good nest egg or a nice net worth, they'd be more inclined to do something like, you know, a cohabitation agreement or a prenup if they actually are getting married. Well, Andrew, this has been great. I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Some nuggets of wisdom for sure sprinkled throughout this episode. But where can people find you if they want to learn more about you after this goes live? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, Andrew Hatherley. H-A-T-H-E-R-L-E-Y. A lot of people forget that E. Yeah. My CDFA website is wiserdivorcesolutions.com. My advisory website is transcendretirement.net. And both Wiser Divorce Solutions and Transcend Retirement are both on Facebook as well. And of course, the Gray Divorce Podcast, <laughs> found in all podcast directories near you. And it's gray with an A. Awesome. Well, listeners, this has been yet another episode of the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcasting platform. That way, you'll be alerted immediately each week when a new episode is released. Maybe even consider sharing the link to this week's episode with your friends and colleagues. And if you really liked what you heard, be sure to leave us a review. This will help make sure that more people just like you are able to find the show organically. You may connect with me, your host, on social, at Malcolm on Money, and feel free to send us any questions, comments, or kudos to podcast at tech-money.com. That email again is podcast at tech-money.com. And as always, we hope that this episode of the Tech Money Podcast has helped to make you just a little bit smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, To review the show notes or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out tech-money.com. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is tech-money.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing, and the sound controls powered by Tech Money, LLC. Thank you for listening. Information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation.
This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...